Hey everyone, it's co-host Peter. I'm near a babbling brook by my house, stargazing on this lovely late summer evening while we're on break from the podcast. We'll be back with season four on October 4th, but in the meantime, here's my staff pick for our first rewind of the break. From the dusty bins of season one, I present to you episode 31 of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, Willie Nelson, Stardust, originally released one day before Nelson's 87th birthday. Enjoy. Yeah, that was our intro. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, anti-sortition rally organizer, Jeremy Ruggles. It's time we take a stand. We can no longer choose our leaders randomly. That's what anti-sortition would be. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that micro ted talk that was funny wasn't it classic are you guys classic opening imagining our listeners just all yucking it up right now laughing out loud cool who else is here we're also of course joined by the former treasurer for the quad cities chapter of the reanimator fan club peter cook r.i.p Stuart gordon true true so this week, Jeremy is kind of leading the charge on the album, but this is a, it's an album that's close to all of our hearts for various reasons. So in a way, this is kind of a, all three of us are hosting this episode, but Jeremy, would you like to tell us what the record is and what our first song is going to be? Yes, the record. There was a time when people didn't say this man's name in hushed reverence, but this is just who, where we're at now. Uh, Willie Nelson, Stardust. Mm. Mm. And we're just going to start with the song Moonlight in Vermont. And then I'll say why I picked that one first after the song. Sounds good. Let's hear it. What are we, what are we playing? Moonlight in Vermont. It's like you don't even listen. I think you cut off on my end. So if you said it before, I didn't hear it. <laughs> Moonlight in Vermont affected everybody, like Captain Beefheart said. <laughs> Pennies in a stream Fallen leaves a sycamore Moonlight in Vermont I see finger waves 
ski trails on a mountainside Snow light in Vermont Telegraph cables sing down the highway Travel each bend and road People who meet in this romantic setting Are so hypnotized by love Evening summer breeze Warbling all along Moonlight in Vermont We have been saying for a while that we wanted to do a genuine country album on this show, and we've now picked... Willie Nelson, and it's funny that this is an album of standards that he's doing covers. They're all covers, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And this what this was on the country chart, so it was marketed as a country album. Still, I mean, for obvious reasons, but yes, it is still not quite a genuine country album. <laughs> we're not there yet, but I'm happy we're doing this one. Yeah, it's just funny that we've come close now with this and the the Frankie Lane record, but. Not quite authentic yet. Yeah. True. Well, I picked that song because that song kicked off this album being made. And I want to get more into that, but I feel like we need context. I'm going to back up the truck, give you the rundown on the man himself. Maybe people know these things. Maybe they don't. I think Sean mentioned it earlier. Dude's old. He's 86. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's been around. And yet somehow looks even older than 86 though. True. He was born in the Great Depression in 1933. That's wow. That's that's amazing. Unbelievable. And he just to really capture the fact that Willie is doing what he was always meant to do and can't seem to ever stop doing. He wrote his first song at the age of seven, was in his first band by the age of 10, and was touring as the front man and guitar player for Bohemian Polka by the time he was in high school. (laughs) Bohemian Polka was a a band he was in? Yeah, he was like the front man of Bohemian Polka, and they were going on regional tours. That would have been... That's when Willie was authentic. Yeah, that would have been like the (laughs) late 40s. Yeah, so just like post in the years after World War II, he was out there doing hitting the road with a country band, Bohemian Polka. Maybe they weren't a country band. No, they were a polka band. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he joined the Air Force and then left because he had back problems very quickly. Then he did a bunch of odd jobs, DJing mostly on Texas radio. He would sing in honky-tonks at night. 
And then he left for Nashville to try and make it big. In the 60s, he had a string of hits that he wrote the song for, Crazy, that ended up being done by Patsy mm-hmm. Cline was the largest of those. Yeah, I remember hearing when I was younger that he had basically just written that to like pay rent that month. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, became a huge hit. Yep, and he kind of got typecasted in Nashville as someone who could write songs well but wasn't a performer wasn't like the main feature so in 1970 after spending the 60s kind of in obscurity as just a songwriter in Nashville he got divorced and then his ranch burned down and his albums he was making then his solo albums were not doing well either And he took this as a sign to retire in 1972. Whoa. Which is why (laughs) Willie Nelson never made another song after 1972. Yep, and no one's one's talked about him in years until we discovered this rusty old gem of music. (laughs) No, no, this is not the facts (laughs) of the case. He retired in 1972 and then... Began in 1973 writing music again, arguably even better music. And this all happened in Austin, Texas. And this is where I feel like this is the important context to me beyond him not making it as a front man yet. And then he moved to Austin, Texas and started playing at this place called the Armadillo World Headquarters which was, in fact, a rundown armory that was in terrible condition. And they were known for, mostly known for tolerating cannabis use in their building at a time when nowhere else in Texas was going for that. (laughs) Perfect for Willie. Perfect for Willie. And they were kind of the meeting ground for this sort of cosmic cowboy, they called it, genre or progressive country. And then later on, they were kind of a place where the punk scene was also making itself known in Texas. So that heavily shaped Willie Nelson's voice and essentially served as the breeding ground for what became outlaw country. At around this time, he convinced Waylon Jennings to leave Nashville and move out to Austin because he said he'd found this following for music that represents them that is sort of this cowboy-hippie hybrid that made up Austin, Texas at the time. Yeah, I know just a year before the album that we're listening to today came out, David Allen Coe, another outlaw country artist, wrote the song Willie Whalen and Me that was all about in Texas, the talk turning to outlaws, them being the three at the vanguard of that. Yeah, they really, yeah, they were the beginnings of it. It's also interesting to look back on Whalen and Willie's early career and just see like some early television appearances from them because they're very clean cut, normal looking. <laughs> you know, you, you can tell they're trying to make it in Nashville the same way that everybody else is. And it was really a, a revolution for these guys to just be like, actually, we're going to be exactly who we are, you know, the, the good and the bad, all of our flaws, and make way more money by doing that. 
Like it was just an unheard of thing for any part of the music industry at that point. Yeah, I have some of Waylon Jennings' earlier stuff, and he's doing like MacArthur Park on there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing like Honky Tonk Heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me play another jam because we wanted to do quite a few of these. Let the people hear the willy. Yeah, nonstop jams. I want to do Blue Skies because I just yes. want to. I love it. It's so good. Especially because like Blue Skies in its more traditional version is one of the cheesiest songs of the songs that he covered. And his version is just like almost unrecognizable for how soulful it is. Yeah, there's something about the way that it's so melancholy and or the, the lyrics are so melancholy. Or, I'm sorry, vice versa. The melody is so melancholy and he's singing. It's supposed to be sounding joyful. Yeah, he shifted it. It's originally a major key song, which people perceive as being happy. And he changed it harmonically to be a minor key song that gives it that kind of melancholy thrust that really recontextualizes it as he does amazingly on this album to give it a whole new meaning. I think we buttered up our listeners enough if they're not familiar with it. Blue skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies do I see Bluebirds singing a song Nothing but blue skies From now on I never saw the sun shining so bright Never saw things going so right Noticing the days hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly by Blue days all of them gone Nothing but blue skies From now on That one's a really good example of Willie's excellent guitar playing that I feel he sometimes gets recognized for, but not nearly enough. And that's also the sound of Trigger. I'm sure you guys are both aware of his his infamous guitar, the only guitar he's played for decades that is now, it's got a giant hole in it and looks totally beat up, <laughs> yeah. but still sounds amazing. And the- Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. The very unique thing about Trigger 
as opposed to most acoustic guitars using country is it's a nylon string. You can kind of hear that. Yes. That tone that's different about Willie's. What's different is that the strings are not metal. They're made of nylon. Mm -hmm. Which is typically more of a classical or Spanish guitar style. Is yeah, it's very rare in most forms of popular music. Yeah, most country, especially, you want that twang, you want the metal string pinging on you. But he's an outlaw. He doesn't follow the rules. He's a rebel. He's a rebel. He's a rebel. Never ever be any good. Yeah, that song was one of the first ones that really pulled me into Willie Nelson when I was younger and picked up like a generic greatest hits of some kind, and that was on there. And I, yeah, that that guitar tone, the sound, the arrangement of that, just everything really spoke to me. I was probably 18 or 19 years old and just absolutely was just enraptured with uh, Willie Nelson from that point forward. I quickly wanted to address a thing that was mentioned in the last section. You know, you said in, in 72, he was considering retiring and then, you know, came back just a year later in 73. But the string of records he did after that point is insane. I just want to read this list real yeah, quick. Yeah, that's what I was going to get so, to next, but do it, do it. Okay. All right. I got you. <laughs> so Shotgun Willie, Phases and Stages, Redheaded Stranger, The Sound in Your Mind, The Troublemaker, Two Lefty from Willie, Waylon and Willie, then Stardust in 78, One for the Road with Leon Russell after that, then Willie Nelson sings Christofferson, and then his Christmas album in 79, Pretty Paper. Like all of those are amazing records. True. And he, That's- him and Waylon <laughs> basically invented Outlaw Country in that you know run of albums there yep another interesting little tidbit from that period waylon his manager went to jail because waylon decided to ship himself a large stash of cocaine and his manager took the fall for it and willie thought that that was so cool of his manager that he fired his own manager and hired waylon's manager <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> who who was in prison at the yeah. time? <laughs> He's like, this is real. This is outlaw. Yeah. True. I remember hearing, you know, because Willie is notorious for his cannabis use. And I remember what I would call a stoner fact, as in the types of things you hear when you're sitting around getting high with people when you're younger, uh, you know, pre-phones when you can't verify anything. I was I remember hearing the fact that Willie Nelson had been busted in all 50 states for possession of marijuana. I, I don't think it's true. I don't think that's true. I found no facts but, verifying that. Yeah, I haven't snopes, snopesed it, but... Yeah, can neither <laughs> confirm or deny, but it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it sounds real, right? Sure, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's consumed cannabis in all 50 states. True. Very good point. <laughs> all right, so, as Sean mentioned, crazy string of albums basically defining the outlaw country genre. And then comes 1978 when he goes to his neighbor who lives a couple floors above him in an apartment complex who happens to be Booker T of Booker T and the MG's fame Mm -hmm. and wants him to do an arrangement for Moonlight in Vermont, the first song we played a clip for there. And Willie was so blown away by it and just had a a vision from 
making this with him that he wanted to do a whole album of old standards. It's such an amazing coincidence. And I had read that Willie had been wanting to do a record like this for a couple years before that point, but just like hadn't found the right person to make his vision a reality. So yeah, that chance meeting of of him and Booker T is so incredible and it makes a lot of sense too. I think the initial reaction to him working with Booker T is like, Oh, that's such a random thing. I can't believe it worked. But if you really dig into a lot of that stack sound, it was highly informed by a lot of American roots music. You know, it was a soul label, but there was a lot of folk and country and blues sounds kind of creeping into the work they were doing. So in a way, Booker T was like the absolute perfect person to do the arrangements for this album true and that's how willie felt and that is not how columbia records felt at the time yeah, yeah. columbia records was pissed they said <laughs> that his fans wanted edgy cowboy songs and if he wanted to do covers he should do you know grateful dead or bob dylan not music that their grandpa used to listen to yeah this was really a anachronistic for the time like i'm sure yeah he basically went against the whole like brand and image he had formed for himself and taken a full left turn into kind of the opposite of that by doing old pop standards yeah and it's also interesting because the move for an artist to do an album of pop standards is industry playbook for someone who is way past their prime kind of thing they had their last hit was 30 years ago but maybe we could get that senior citizen crowd back on board if we <laughs> do these old pop tunes so that just such a strange rebellious move in every way like no one wanted him to do this <laughs> and then it worked it was huge it was his like major breakthrough commercially right yeah, this album was on the billboard charts for 10 years straight yep 540 <laughs> weeks is spent on the billboard country chart it went trip it went more than triple platinum yeah so they were way wrong they majorly miscalculated its audience having the context of his early career and all of that it kind of makes even more sense how they were pretty skeptical of this you know my initial thoughts when hearing that Columbia was against it was like, yeah, of course they'd be against it. But like, how can they tell Willie Nelson what to do? He's a legend. But then when you look at it, it's like he's only been a hit for just a couple years and had spent 15, 20 years as a nobody before this, like a nobody that everybody thought there was no way he could be a star. So I could I could really kind of understand how terrified they were. Like, we just made this guy famous and he's about to throw it all away already. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't super famous either his albums like redheaded stranger uh they garnered critical acclaim but he wasn't like a top selling artist by any means at that point either and that's five years into sure. you know getting some critical acclaim but not being incredibly famous yeah we're all born into the world where willie nelson is just a star the three of us were all born into a world where he's pretty established and for various reasons has always been able to maintain a, a level of credibility or, you know, people that might not even like country music, I think respect Willie Nelson. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson are the two things. Like I don't like country, but those guys are okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And Willie said after, well, he said in his autobiography, 
after this album, he never had to argue with a record executive again. They just gave him control. <laughs> and he continued to do good work after this. Like, you know, Sean, as Sean was pointing out, it's it's not like he drops off and starts putting out mediocre crap after this. It, it, he continues to put out quality stuff. I even like uh, Always On My Mind, that album that was another pop record. Mm-hmm. He continues to still put out good records. Like he's he's got some duds in his catalog. Obviously, I mean he was dropping <laughs> one to two albums a year all the way through the eighties and nineties. But like there's incredible masterpiece gems all throughout every period of his career. It's it's pretty incredible to dive into it. Yeah, I was just checking out another one that he did in the late nineties. I think it's called Night and Day, and it's an instrumental jazz album. It's actually. Not dissimilar to this, except he's not singing on it, but doing other standards. Hmm. Yeah. It's uh, of its time, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that one was 99, and the album right before it, 98, uh, Teatro, is considered to be one of his absolute best late period records as well. Nice, yeah. I, ha- I have, have not listened to that one. I really need to check, it, check that one out. I also really don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so. <laughs> Teatro. Sure. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this was his 22nd album when he put this out in 78. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's got to be like pushing 100 (laughs) at this point, albums. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, studio albums, according to Wikipedia, he's just dropped number 70 this year. Okay. He's put out almost one per every year he's yeah. lived. I wonder if that counts all of his collaborations, though. And that doesn't include live. Oh, yeah, totally. So I want to play another cut, Georgia On My Mind, which is probably my favorite on this album. And I was reading that Booker T had to talk him into doing this song. He really wanted to do it, but he felt that Ray Charles had already pretty much owned the song and booker t had to talk him into it by basically saying like yeah ray killed it with his version but your version is something else it's a different thing you're not in competition with him so true although there's similar parallels of no one wanted ray to do his country and western album as an r&b star but he made it work this is georgia on my mind Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia, Georgia, a song of you comes as sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines. 
guitar tone there in that the keyboard in the intro i'm not exactly sure what it is if it's like a Rhodes or something but yeah the guitar tone is just so tasty and something i noticed on the album that i mentioned from the late 90s night and day i don't know if dave matthews had like a bad influence on how people produced acoustic guitars but it's on that one it's more of like an electrified acoustic guitar sound that i just hate <laughs> and yeah. uh you know, and here, this is like 20 years earlier, and it's just like, no, you got the tone perfected here. Don't mess with that formula. Truth. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about this record is just every single tone and instrument on here is just perfectly recorded and flawlessly played. Like, it's just one of the most masterfully recorded and executed albums I've ever heard. Yeah. Peter, do you know who the bass player is on this record? Uh, I do not, actually. There's a guy named Chris Etheridge. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. He's from the Flying Burrito Brothers, wrote Hot Burrito number one and two. I've talked about him on the... He was on that Phil Oaks album as well Yep, that we did. Yep. Apparently, he did a decent amount of work with Willie Nelson, but he's playing bass all over this record. Beautiful. Yeah, he's... I mean, he's great. Hot Burrito number one and two are two of my favorite songs ever, and he co-wrote those, so... Yep. Yeah, he was also... Forever in my heart. He was also in the International Submarine Band. Yeah, yep, the earlier Graham Parsons band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's Booker T himself on the organ sounds, and... Uh, yeah. And Willie Nelson's sister is playing most of the piano stuff. Yeah, and I guess she's been on the majority of his records ever since then, too. Well, that explains why that organ just went straight to my heart. It was Booker T playing it. Yeah, the goat. So, yeah, the record label was punishingly wrong. This was, in fact, embraced (laughs) by everyone. That's why you will find this record everywhere. It sold like 5 million copies. So Yep, quintuple platinum. Quintuple platinum. It's cheap. Willie himself, upon reflecting on it on the 30th anniversary, he said, Good songs never die. If it was good a hundred years ago, it's still good today. Love it. That was my impeccable Willie impression right there. (laughs) It sounded real. I I thought you had Willie over your house there for a second. Hell, I don't know. We never used him. I will comment a little bit about on the uh, cheapness of this record. I, I will say that it's it's definitely been starting to go up in price over the last few years. 
it should be a three to five dollar record but i wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing more and more places trying to squeeze 10 out of it and it also still sells pretty quickly for how for how many copies there are in existence well this brings up another point sean that uh, i think it's too soon to tell and when this episode airs in a couple weeks it could be different but uh do you think the current economic situation might uh set back these vinyl prices a little bit uh do you think it's going to have any long-term impact i don't know it's rising it's just it's so tough to say because yeah there's the whole you know pandemic that's going to potentially have long-lasting drastic economic repercussions and then there's the whole thing of the mastering plant catching on fire earlier this year yeah yeah that we haven't talked about that um let's just touch on that a little bit i don't need to like totally sidetrack us sure. in, with serious stuff but yeah they one of the major well they make the acetates right yeah the a- acetates and lacquers one of the major manufacturers of that was destroyed in a fire correct yeah yeah and it's something like they handled they handled like 80 percent of the masters for all american pressings so people just aren't really sure how the industry is going to cope with that and how it's going to affect prices and availability and possibly even the amount of people that are even collecting vinyl like you know all of a sudden if if new vinyl goes up double or 50 percent in price because of supply and demand how many people are going to stick with it at that point that's something that ha- I kind of almost I forgot that happened because more major things than that have happened since then. But I uh, <laughs> like totally reminded me of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see where these constantly rising prices of vinyl these last several years of LPs. We'll, we'll see where that takes us. But anyway, back to Willie. Maybe this will be like a three to five dollar record as it should be again in a year or two. Sure. Maybe Thriller will start going back down in price, too. That'd be nice. Meh stockpile (laughs) so sean you mentioned you wanted me to play all of me which for me is maybe my least favorite song on the album but okay tell me why why do you want that one it's something that's kind of stood out to me in listening to this album over the years is i felt like a couple of the songs on here at least were ones that are more traditionally sung by female vocalists and I have no idea if this was intentional at all, but it seemed like kind of a, you know, further outlaw move on his part to, you know, not only perform in a genre that he wasn't supposed to, but to sing these supposedly effeminate songs, I thought was a really cool element. Yeah. And this song specifically, all of me is, was most notably known for the, uh, Billie Holiday version up until this point. I thought it was a cool element. I thought I was going to ask if uh, you know if Dinah Washington did any of the songs featured on this album. I'm almost positive she did, but I can't tell you which ones off the top of my head. It just, it, listening to it, it, you know, it brought back us featuring that album. Listening to this one, yeah, definitely cool. Well, here's all of me. Try not to pay attention to that kick drum because it drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, Jeremy's the one that will hone in on very specific elements uh, of, that that uh, will drive him wild. I love the kick drum on it, so. All of me, why not take all? 
feel like that song is a perfect example of how a lesser artist could have really just made it so cheesy and forgettable. The song starts a little more upbeat than some of the previous numbers. And you kind of think, okay, maybe this song is going to be a little cheesier, a little too fun and goofy. And then when the vocals come in, it just instantly strips down the arrangement and he provides this incredibly soulful and strangely laid back vocal style on the song. And then the guitar solo is very refined and very laid back as well. Like the song is just perfectly balanced for me. I love it. Well, the one thing out of balance would be the kick drum. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. I don't think that most artists could pull this off, especially ones that are outside of their element, which he in theory should have been. He just, it fits so well. Like this whole album, I mean, like it really it's a not only does it work but it was a huge commercial success i i just think it's a phenomenal yeah. achievement and, and almost just a weird anomaly to have happened sure the only other person i can think of that did this really well is actually bob dylan on his uh was it the triplicate album that he did just a few years ago uh, but that one's not nearly that as one. well loved as this yeah i mean it was so late in his career i didn't really get as much attention as this one he did the shadows. Was it shadows of the night? I heard that one uh, where he did a lot of old standards. Uh, yeah, I think they were back to back or good. right around the same time. Yeah, that one was pretty good. I enjoyed it for what it was. So I think we were all going to talk about what this album means to us personally, and maybe how we came across the album. A little bit of our our personal history. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I can. Well, we can talk about this because it'll kind of connect to what Sean talks about. I'm sure. When Sean DJed my wedding uh, a couple years ago, my father-in-law had requested the title track from this, Stardust, 
And it ended up being, I don't think we originally intended for it to be the final song of the night, but it ended up being uh, the last song that was played. And it was a great closer, great slow dance song to end the night of dancing. Sean did a great job DJing. Is a plug on the side if you're looking for a wedding DJ. Aw, thanks. DJ Hard Bargain is the one to call uh, or email, probably email. But <laughs> uh, DJ Hard Bargain at gmail.com, Sean. Is that That's correct? me. Hit me up. There you go. But I didn't realize until we were talking about doing this episode, I, I thought I should ask my father in law why he requested that one. So I did. And he said it's linked to memories of his mother who had passed away almost 30 years ago. She was a great influence on him and including, you know, and how he acts in the world and with the music that she bought when he was growing up. And she bought this album and, and played it. He was probably a young man of uh, 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, they played it on the briefcase hi-fi that they had in the house. And he just absolutely loved it. He was a rocker in the 70s, was rocking out to the hard stuff with Zeppelin and uh, stuff like that. So this was a departure for him, but it just totally spoke to him. He had been like a fan of Dave Brubeck as well, so not totally uh, alien to him. But yeah, he loved the classic standards. And so it was a way of having his mother present at the wedding. It also meant something to my mother-in-law as well. It turns out that the song Stardust is memorable for her because her grandmother was acquainted with Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote Stardust through her sorority at Indiana University way back in the day. There's a real familial connection to Hoagie Carmichael and the song Stardust. Interesting. Yeah. So that is why you ended up playing this at our wedding, Sean. That's why. And uh, I think that it, had its impact on you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've got kind of a handful of connections to Willie and this record. So previous to that wedding, I had read people talking about how Redheaded Stranger is this masterpiece country album. And if you've never listened to Willie or country, that's the one to get into. And it's infamous for being the, the token country album in people's collections who don't normally collect country. And I listened to, you know, the next copy that came in the record store and was like, whoa, this is good. I didn't realize that maybe I actually like country music. And then shortly after that, a copy of Shotgun Willie came in the store. And I actually liked that record even more from 73 and bought that and listened to both those albums a bunch and then kind of forgot about them for a few years, didn't play them as much. And then when the, the song Stardust was requested, I downloaded the album to play it. And started listening to it in preparation and was just blown away at how good this record was. I'd kind of avoided it previous to that, just thinking like, oh, it's a later thing, probably a little cheesier. The song picks on there, you know, this can't be that great of an album and was just totally blown away. And it completely reignited my love for Willie Nelson. And I started listening to a lot more of his albums from this time period and collecting a lot more of his catalog. And then uh, the final connection is... This, uh, this album has since become the album that my daughter falls asleep to every single night. I, oh, wow. Yeah, I started playing some of the songs off it years ago while putting her to sleep because it's just such a peaceful, relaxing album. And of all the stuff I've played for, this one just connected with her the most. And at this point, it's part of the nightly routine. Like every single night, this album plays start to finish for her. Wow, it's become a family fixture. Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah, my connections are not nearly as deep and personal <laughs> i guess similar <laughs> similar to sean 
a friend of mine sold me his vinyl copy of Redheaded Stranger at a garage sale and was he basically had to talk me into it like I was like the aforementioned person Sean had mentioned that Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash people might be into a, but country around that time early 2000s had morphed into a very gross corporate branded sort of thing so I thought I didn't like country until I listened to Redheaded Stranger I then went out and got the albums that are easiest to find of Willie Nelson which was Stardust and Always on My Mind I've really latched onto Always on My Mind but Stardust is also very great yeah Always on My Mind is one that my mother had on cassette when I was a youngster. And so I, that's how I first became aware of him. I remember my mother showing me his picture and saying, he kind of looks like Charles Manson, doesn't he? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, the, I should mention this briefly. The, the cover is just like a picture of some stars and it says Willie Nelson Stardust. On the back of the album is a picture of Willie Nelson wearing a top hat with a sort of Navajo-themed band around it. He's got a grizzled, unshaven face, long, unkempt hair, and a very 1980s winter coat on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a wacky picture. It super is. And I think it just fully plays into his whole just walking his own path on this he's he's making this album that is traditionally in the territory of people making a final sellout album but yet still just doing it exactly the way he wants to regardless of other people's input true this is his way of being punk in 1978 exactly and this we're approaching an hour now so we gotta wrap it up but i just want to read an insane list of other willie nelson stories and things to know with very little context i'm just going to read this and break everyone's brains <laughs> please do hit me with that list let's start with he survived a plane crash and walked away from it after performing at the white house for jimmy carter snuck up onto the roof with jimmy carter's son and smoked a doobie on top of the White House <laughs> with Jimmy Carter's son. I, I remember the, I remember hearing that story. That is, th that's another stoner fact, and that's true, huh? Yeah, that is true. <laughs> that's another one you would hear in the smoking circles. <laughs> uh, awesome. Earlier on, he chased off his son-in-law with an M1 rifle after his daughter told him that he had assaulted her. He drove over there immediately and fired his rifle at him until the guy drove away, waited around for him to come back and put some more bullets into the guy's car. <laughs> Nobody was injured, but he took care of that situation. Wow, they didn't do they didn't feature Willie Nelson on the Tales from the Tour bus, did they, Sean? Or Jeremy, do you know? He was mentioned a lot because he's just so ingrained with the outlaw culture, but I don't think there was a specific episode about him. We need another season yeah. for that. Yeah, he was 
mentioned quite a bit in the Waylon Jennings episode of that. Yeah. He was also arrested at age 72 in 2010 for possession of six ounces of marijuana on his tour bus. <laughs> in every state. In, no, just in one state. <laughs> at age, it wasn't like a class. In that year. It wasn't a class action arrest where all 50 states claimed it or something like that. Some technicality. <laughs> Unprecedented. Yeah. <laughs> At age 81, he earned a fifth-degree black belt in Gong Kwan Yu Sol. Hmm. He also told crazy man Alex Jones that he believed that 9-11 was an inside job. He bailed Dennis Hopper out of jail, who was arrested after consuming <laughs> a copious amount of LSD the most interesting part of that is Willie Nelson did not know Dennis Hopper previously. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, oh man, someone's in trouble for something I can understand. I'm going to help this guy out. Yep, man. Willie drove him out of there through the desert while he was still tripping his brains out. Do you know what year that was? Do you have any idea? If I remember right, it was in the early 90s. Oh, geez. Much more recent than I would have thought. I thought that was going to be like 1973 or something. No, like that. it was either the late 80s or early 90s, I believe. Huh. Wow. And that's that's after Hopper had like returned to like mainstream success with films, too. He also owed more money to the U.S. government than pretty much any American and recorded a set of albums just to try and pay off his tax bill. And he was inducted into the National Agricultural Hall of Fame for starting Farm Aid, a huge mm. festival to help, you know, the average Joe farmer get by in the context of corporate farming that is, you know, destroying the earth. Oh, yeah. And he started a biodiesel company called BioWilly that, <laughs> and Converted all of his tour buses over to biodiesel because American farmers could grow the ethanol to support biodiesel then. That rules. Yeah, yeah. He's always been behind some good causes. Yeah, so that's, uh, even that's probably just scratching the surface. There's probably a lot more Willy notables out there. So there's uh, there's no dirt on Willie. He's an actual living American saint. Is that how we're going out? I didn't find any J John Denver type tales. I mean, other than chasing his son-in-law off with a rifle, um, but nobody was hurt, and he was pretty justified in doing that. So as far as I can tell, yeah. the dude's just a saint. I mean, I've done a fair amount of research and watched interviews and stuff, and it... I, don't seem to find anything bad about him. I mean, he's he seems to have stated that he doesn't think he's always been the best person, but he's also been always very family oriented. You know, his his kids are all in his band. His wife travels on the tour bus with him, and his family just has seems to have nothing but great things to say about him. If you say so, I did read that he's had four marriages and seven children, kind of spread out through those. Well, he's also like 180 years old, right? He's 86. Some, some of those wives just <laughs> some of the wives just died of natural causes, right? 
I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) (laughs) We were going to go out on Stardust. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Go out on the title track. I want to thank my wife's folks, uh, Mark and Becky, for sharing their Stardust memories with us. I I had no idea about some of those connections until uh, doing research for this episode. This is a great episode where I can just contact, you know, family about uh, the details mm-hmm. <laughs> for it. I tried to convince Eloise to come on and talk about why she likes falling asleep to this record, but she wasn't having it. <laughs> we'll get her on someday. We'll, we'll, we'll get her on this podcast. Uh, she'd sat in and on one episode already she's seen how we do this yeah oh and i almost forgot to mention last week when i was doing a little bit of research for uh peter's pick the matthew's southern comfort album i was listening to that record and eloise was in the room she's like dad i don't like this can you just put willie nelson on instead (laughs) at a girl it wasn't to the watch, was it? The really disturbing song with the crying that we completely neglected to mention on that episode. <laughs> we did that. Album, that song is terrifying. <laughs> I, I think that was her opinion. Like immediately from halfway through track one, she was just like, "Nope, put on Willie." <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, I love that Matthew Southern Comfort, but uh, Willie's, you know, more rooted in uh, the country tradition. Uh, you know, he, he really came up in it. Um, I was going to comment on that that crying track on the album that when John Olson said that his his buddy wouldn't give him the recording of his wife crying uh, when we did the uh, episodes with John Olson and John Howard, I, I can see why you wouldn't want to listen mm-hmm. to a whole side of uh, of someone weeping when just a couple minutes on a song is disturbing and unnerving. But anyway, oh yeah, so unnerving. <laughs> And I, I feel like I listen to a lot of uncomfortable music, but for some reason that track just really upset me more than normal. <laughs> yeah, I was alone when I first heard it, and it just, I... That was the second most uncomfortable song for me after the Renaissance one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I think we have digressed <laughs> enough, and it's time to uh, go out on Stardust. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely night. Dreaming of a song The melody Haunts my reverie And I am once again with you When our love was new And each kiss an inspiration But that was long ago And now my consolation Is in the stardust of a song Beside the garden wall When stars are bright You are in my arms The nightingale Tells his fairy tale 
of paradise where roses grew. Though I dreamed in vain, in my heart there always will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. <laughs> 